take your Bible if you would. I'd like to start in Jeremiah chapter 2. I have an invitation for the Mormon Tabernacle Quartet. If you will change your name, we have a place for you in the South. Perhaps the Jim and Tammy Quartet or perhaps the Baker Boys. Hey, you know, from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock, I didn't get all of that, but that's okay. From 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock at night, every night, in Birmingham, Alabama, on the only Christian radio station, they play the gospel caravan, and they play your kind of music. You would like it. Nobody else does. I enjoyed it. I want to invite your attention this morning to Jeremiah chapter 2. Before we do that, I do want us to bow our heads one more time. We've exalted God. We have worshipped God. Now let's ask Him to drive every distraction away. That what we see in His Word will penetrate our heart. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We do thank You for the rich and awesome God that we serve. And Father, we appeal to You now, the beginning of this time in Your Word, that You might drive the distractions of life away. That we might be ministered to by You. May your words speak. May our hearts hear. And Lord, we ask that as we go from this place today, we'll be different. Committed to new things and greater grace. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a Friday night, my sophomore year at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I had an organic chemistry book in front of me, and I was bored to tears. What in the world am I doing with an organic chemistry book on a Friday night? So I shoved the book aside and I pulled out my Bible. I was lonely. I was 350 miles from home. I was a sophomore. All my buddies went partying that night. As a matter of fact, we had a party in the fraternity lounge downstairs. And I opened my Bible and I said, God, I'm lonely tonight. Talk to me. Minister to me. I want to know you. I want to have fellowship tonight. I'm alone. So I opened God's Word and I began to read. About 15 or 20 minutes later, I closed it and shoved it aside, and the fact is, I was still lonely. Somehow I had not gotten a hold of God. Somehow in His Word I had not received what I was looking for, aching for, thirsting for. So I decided to take things into my own hands, and I walked out the door to my hallway as I heard the driving rhythm of the live band downstairs. And I was headed downstairs to see what I could find to fill the ache. I'd made it two floors down. I lived on the third floor, and as I was walking down the corridor of that last part of the hallway, there was a door ajar, and I don't know what it was, but I walked into that room, and in that room was Joe Tabone. He was the center on our football team. I was a wide receiver, and Joe and I had talked, and he was a Catholic. We had computer calculus together. What a deal. We had a great and deep relationship. A lineman with a wide receiver. Calculus is the basis of our relationship. And I walked in, and Joe didn't drink, and neither did I. That's why he wasn't at the party. And we began to chat, and I said, Joe, I'm going down to the party. Do you want to go? You got nothing to do? Do you want to go along? He said, uh, not really. And I could tell by the look and the tone of his voice that Joe was hurting too, and I said, Joe, what's wrong? And he said, Harry, I'm lonely got an ache inside that just don't just will not quit he was parroting my words not spoken out loud but filling my heart and 
I said, Joe, have you ever met Jesus Christ? And 30 minutes later, Joe Tabone from Scranton, Pennsylvania, bowed his head and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to fill the aching void in his life. And he got saved. And I want you to know in that moment of time, an aching, longing, thirsty soul, my soul, had rivers of abundant life flowing out of it. I had everything I ever longed for. But because of a lack of patience and perseverance, I almost blew it. You know what happens to us? We can't control God like a genie in a bottle. We can't rub the lamp often enough and right enough in order to get God to fill the ache when we want it filled. And as a consequence of that, we tend to take issues into our own hands. And we go looking for life where there is no life. And before we go back to Second Peter to finish our list of the seven ingredients necessary to partake of God's nature, I want to start off with, with exposing you to what I believe is the most candid and precise commentary on what's gone wrong with our spiritual life. Look at Jeremiah 2 with me. This is the first of 13 oracles that God spoke through Jeremiah. The people of Israel had walked with God. Verse 2 says, God speaking through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. God said, I remember Israel. You used to love me. You were the first fruit. You and your youth were devoted to me. But something went awry, and now look at verse 13. Actually, let's begin with verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, God says at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people who used to love me have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That night at Brown University, I tried to trade away the life that was truly life through the fountain, which is God. God, by His own commentary, said, I am life that is truly life. Look what He says. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living life, pure, abundant waters of life is available in Me. They left Me like I left my room and went and sought alternatives, other sources of life. Look what they did. They exchanged the true life for an alternative source of life. They chose to hew cisterns. Now, cisterns are water pots. I've never been to the Near East, but commentators say these water pots would sit alongside of the street to catch the runoff as it would run down from the mountains into these pots or holes. They also had pots sitting by the table or the tops of roofs where the roof, the water would run off of the roof into the pot and they would catch the water there. And the Bible says that we have chosen to exchange God for some alternative source of life. And William Barclay says that water that used to flow down the street and off the rooftop had the color of weak soap suds. It had the smell of earth and stable. William Barclay said it was contaminated water. It was not pure water. You know what we do most? We don't wait on God. We look for alternatives to God. And we go to water pots that hold dirty water. Furthermore, we go to water pots that cannot even hold polluted water. 
Because the Bible says in verse 13, those are broken water pots which can hold no water. You know what we do? We run the relationships. Ken was saying it earlier. When trouble comes, when issues come into our life and we ache with need, we don't worship God. No, we run to things. We run to a relationship. We run to an activity. We buy a new CD. We rent a movie. We take a nap. We escape. We do something to ease the pain in our life. God says that is ultimately frustrating. In verse 12, He says, be appalled at the behavior. I played high school football, but this was before they learned that you needed water to survive. They used to give us two times at the water fountain. We'd practice all morning. And they would give us two shots at the water fountain. And the coach would stand by the the lever of the fountain and he would do this with it and then that. And just when you were beginning to get a little bit of satisfaction, he'd stop it. Well, it wasn't too long until a few of us discerned a way to resolve this problem. We took our helmet off, the one we'd been practicing in, and we would hold it under the fountain so that what we couldn't get with the fountain, we got with our helmet. And then as we jogged back across the field, we had the rest in our helmet to drink. You say, that's awful. It was a whole lot worse than I have it at all. But you know what? What I didn't know was there were two fountains. And there was another fountain where the offensive line coach, and you didn't have to go to a particular fountain. You could go to either one, but the line coach, he would let you have all you wanted. (laughs) And there I was, drinking out of a sweaty, dirty, helmet when I could have had the real stuff right out of the well, right out of the pipe. You know, that's the way we are with God. We could have the real thing. And yet we consistently substitute the real thing for something else. Why? We're not willing to wait on God. God's not like a faucet. We can't turn Him on when we want Him on. We can't rub Him like the genie in the bottle. We can't formulize a way to taste God whenever we want Him because God's God. And God does what God wants to do when God wants to do it. So I want to begin this morning by saying this. And as you're turning to 2 Peter chapter 1, I want you to know that the words of truth that we discern in this passage do not necessarily demand that when God, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when you're aching for an experience with God, that He's going to do it the way you want Him to do it, when you want Him to do it. He's God. And what I want to encourage you this morning as we pick up our list is to persevere, to wait, to stay true, to be with hands and heart extended saying, God, I'm not going anywhere else. I don't want to drink from contaminated water. I don't want an alternative because they don't satisfy. I want you. And I'm going to wait on you. Second Peter chapter 1, we discovered on Monday says in verse 4 that we can become a partaker, an experiencer, a sharer in the divine nature. It says furthermore that we can escape the seduction or the corruption that is in the world by lust. It is conditioned upon the application of heavenly promises, great and precious. They are given by God's grace and by the application of those promises we experience true knowledge, epinosis, by which we experience the richness of God. But sometimes that doesn't 
provide all that we long for because verse 5 says we need to do something else. It says, now for this reason also, that is the partaking of the divine nature and the escaping of the corruption that is in the world by lust, we need to work really hard. We need to apply all diligence. We need to put forth every effort to the point of pain in order to secure the partaking of God's nature. What do we need to do? And he outlines seven ingredients that like a chain are hooked together. You can't have it without all of the ingredients in the recipe. And we saw on Monday we needed to add to our faith, supplying to our Christian experience, moral excellence, which is virtue, manly courage, coupled with character and honor. We saw that we needed to add knowledge, which is the accumulation of facts, the understanding of those facts via meditation so that we know how it works. It is cognitive. It is understanding. And furthermore, we not only need to add to our moral excellence and knowledge, but we also need to add, and we saw finally on Monday, self-control, the ability to harness our passions, the ability to restrain our impulses, self-control. But notice what the fourth ingredient is. Because uniquely enough, it is the word perseverance. What I didn't have in that university dormitory, we need. Perseverance is self-control extended over a longer duration. Perseverance is the ability to hang on. Do you remember Joseph in Genesis 39 and Potiphar's wife came to him and propositioned him? Joseph exercised self-control. He said no. But Genesis goes on to record the fact that Potiphar's wife came to him daily. As a matter of fact, the Scripture records that day after day she spoke to Joseph. Come lie with me. Come be with me. And day after day, he did not listen to her to lie with her or be with her. You know what that was? Perseverance. The first time was self-control. The consistent expression of self-control is perseverance. It is the word hupameno. Meno, to abide. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, meno. Hupo is a preposition which means to abide under, to be under something. And you've heard it said before I know. Everybody who preaches the book of James talks about perseverance. Standing under the weight. Staying under it. Not running. Not quitting. It's endurance. It's staying in there. It's not giving in to passion. It's not giving in to anger. It's not quitting. Not giving up. It's sitting right there with all of that on you. Staying true. The most graphic example of Hupameno the world has ever seen was the example of Jesus Christ who the Hebrew writer said, for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Why? For us. How long did He endure? Until it was finished. Could He have called 10,000 angels? Yes, He could have. Could He have escaped? Yes, He could have. Did He choose to leave the cross? No. Why? He endured for the joy set before Him that we might enjoy the grace that He provided in that act. Clement of Rome describes a man with this quality as one who went under a great siege of trials, bears up, and does not lose heart, courage, or temper. Maxie Dean Filer was such a man. The L.A. Times 
describes this. It said it started out as a media joke on the 11 o'clock news. Maxie Dean Filer was a Compton councilman, Compton, California. And it says that he had failed the state bar 42 times. And yes, they were waiting for the results of the 43rd test, which he had just taken. Surely he wouldn't fail, but he did. Some snickered, some felt sorry for him. He must have wanted to be a lawyer awfully bad to keep spending $310 to take the test. He must have felt a little silly because two of his sons were lawyers and he worked for one as a part-time law clerk. And the writer of this article says, what kind of man is this Maxi Dean Filer? Would he take it again? Oh, yes, he'd already applied. He's going to take the test for a 44th time. What kind of man? A hupameno man. He wasn't quitting. He wasn't giving up. He was going to keep on coming. You know what? The church is desperately weak in this area. We don't know what it means to hang in there and get tough and endure because we have all kinds of ways to escape. And Peter says, if you'll know God, if you'll partake of His nature, you can't run. You can't give in to passion. I know it's hard. When you're dating, when you're in relationships, and you know that the Bible teaches that you're to remain pure, and opportunity comes, and offers come, and temptation occurs, you want to give in, and you hold back, and you hold back, but, boy, eventually it'll get you unless you persevere. Unless you determine in your heart, I'm not going to quit. I know how it goes. Exam time, paper time. You want to drop a class? You want to quit your major? (laughs) You want to quit life? You decided there's another school for you. This is not it. We're artists at quitting and justifying the quitting of that which is hard. I know that God doesn't always come through like we want Him to come through, but He will. I know that life is hard and some of you ache and some of you hurt. Some of you have been praying for things and God hasn't come through. Some of you are sick. Some of you are in trouble. Some of you hurt really bad. You've loved and lost and it aches. I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of God's Word, endure. Don't quit. It is a critical ingredient in the pursuit of God. T.C. Hamlet wrote this poem. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked number one? Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye, cruel world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two, he was of sterner stuff. Dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. He said, I'll swim a while at least, he said. Or so I've heard, he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog was dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and swam, then hopped out via butter. (laughs) Don't quit. Stay at it. You say, man, my life's bleary. Keep your perspective. God said in Romans 15:4, through the things that were written aforetime, 
be given encouragement and perseverance through hope. You know, the Bible's full of stories about people that needed God, didn't see God, promises from God, in very bad situations, not the least of which was Job, and they waited on God. Romans 4 talks of Abraham, our favorite man of faith. And you know what it says? He didn't stagger at the promise of God, even though he was nearly a hundred and his wife's womb was nearly dead. But he grew strong in faith, being confident that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Hey, God's true. He'll come through. He may not come through in your timing. He may not come through in your way. But he'll come through. Persevere. Wait on God. Fifthly, verse 6 says, Add to your perseverance godliness. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is an awesome word. Add to your faith godliness. What is godliness? Peter says in verse 10 that there will be a judgment to come. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now listen to this. Because of that judgment, verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, this judgment to come, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The lexicon defines godliness as piety. It is duty owed to God. Peter says it's holy conduct. Peter says it's being at peace, spotless and blameless. Beloved, if we're to know God, we've got to be godly. Godliness is moral behavior. It is holy conduct. It is a Christian lifestyle. It is the external expression of God's heart and law. It is living on the outside what you profess to be on the inside. It is external behavior. It is holy living. You know, we're accused many times of saying that once you become a Christian, you can do anything you want to do. Peter wouldn't agree with that at all. He would say that when you become a Christian, your life needs to express in external format the reality of the internal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, you want to partake of His nature, then you had better set your course to live a godly and a moral life. You say, Harry, you know what? I really want to do that. There's something in my heart that beats with that desire, but the truth is I fail dramatically in that area. What do I do? Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Because the word godliness has a very interesting history or derivation. The secret to living a godly life is bound up in the word godly. The root of the word godliness literally means, now listen to this, the the root of the word we're looking at, godly, external behavior. The root of this word literally means to keep a distance due to fear and caution. 
It means to step back, to shrink back in fear. In Jeremiah 5.22, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates this word, tremble. Malachi 3.16 translates it, fear or dread. Cullen Brown states that this family of words, from the word we have here godly, denoted first caution, then discretion, and later reverence as a result of fear, dread, and awe. Bound up in the meaning of this word is found the true secret to godly living. It is the fear of God. You remember Proverbs says, Blessed is the man who what? Who fears always. The beginning of, the, beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The beginning of practical and wise behavior begins with a fear and a reverence for God. Do you know godliness at its root? means to shrink back in fear and in dread. Exodus chapter 20. You remember, this is where the giving of the Ten Commandments occurred. The first 17 verses record the declaration of holy conduct. God said, Israel, you are mine and you will live this way. But look at verse 18. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. There's our word. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. Now notice verse 20. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. Now listen to this. Highlight this in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Peter says, if you'll know God, if you'll partake of His nature, you've got to add by diligent activity, godliness. And rooted in godliness is a concept of a holy fear of God. And until you reverence God, you won't be motivated inside to live for God. When I first got to Birmingham, Alabama, I had dinner with a veterinarian friend. Just gotten to know him. And he got an emergency call on his beeper and the circus. Barnum and Bailey was calling. He was their veterinarian. When they came to town, he was the veterinarian on call. And Tina Williams, the daughter of Gunther Gable Williams, was on the phone and she said to Bobby... We have a lipizzan that got up against a post and was torn badly in the side. Will you come and repair the animal? Well, of course, he agreed, and he said to me he had to go. And I said, Bobby, do you mind if I ride along? As a pastor, I have a commitment to be where my men are so that I get to know them a little bit. And I thought, I've never been to the circus anyway, and this will be fun. And so off we went down to the Birmingham Civic Center to repair a stallion. Late at night, around midnight when we arrived in the truck and... We walked into the big tent, and she was there to greet us, and she took us over to the... There was a whole line in this big tent of Lipizzan stallions in a row. And on this side of the tent was a whole line of elephants, all pegged down, all chained to these pegs. And as they were walking toward the stallions, you know, I like horses, but not nearly as much as elephants, and I've seen lots of horses and not seen many elephants, especially at that distance. So I was on the other side, and they were walking down the left side together. And I was admiring these elephants, and they were little elephants, and they were huge elephants. There were all kinds of elephants, and I'd never seen an elephant at that close range. 
And all of a sudden, I got a tap on the shoulder. And this big black man said to me, Sir, you'll want to move away from there. And I said, Really, why? They're chained down. He said, No, you don't understand. Those chains and those pegs, that's all for their mind. The truth is, if they want out, they're gone. Furthermore, sir, in Boston last week, there was a CNN cameraman doing a documentary. And he had his camera focused on one of those elephants. And another elephant reached over, grabbed him, picked him up, tossed him across the tent, ruined his camera, broke his body. And we're still in the process of litigating with that issue. I said, really? (laughs) You know what? I didn't want to be another chapter in the stories of the elephants that tossed humans. You say, what's that have to do with reverent fear? I want you to know, I did not walk in the same place, and I did not walk in the same way. My whole demeanor took on a whole new attitude about those guys lined up there on the right-hand side. I shrunk back. I was a little farther. I was a little more cautious. I was a little more careful about how I walked and conducted myself in that tent. You know what? If we view God the way we ought to view God, you'll change your behavior too. We are about to worship God in an extraordinary way this weekend for the love that He manifested in His Son. Romans says He demonstrated His love toward us. His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love. But do you know what else the cross represents? It represents His holy justice. Do you realize if he didn't hate sin so bad, the penalty that Jesus paid would have not nearly been what it was? God is a consuming fire from whom heaven and earth will flee away. That's your God. That awesome God about whom we sung this morning is your God. And He's not just love. He is to be dreaded, to be feared, to be revered. Man, if you know God, you won't live immoral. Because you couldn't out of fear for the magnitude and the reality of who He is. Peter says, add perseverance. And then on top of that, add reverence. Add a holy, godly fear which generates external moral behavior. Sixthly, the Bible teaches in Second Peter chapter 1 that not only are we to we add these unique qualities, but we're to also add the quality of brotherly love. The city near where I grew up was called the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And rightly so, because it means, not because they live as if they love one another, but because the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Adelphos means one born of the same womb, a brother. Figuratively, it means one who believes the same things. Philos means love, a sentiment, an affection, a caring for. Peter says if you want to know God, you've got to add a love for those who share like belief with you. You need to love other Christians. You need to care for them. You need to have a heart for them. Well, what does that mean? How do we cultivate a desire like this? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 
Peter says this same thing another way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood. Paul says in Romans 12.10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. Hebrews 13.1 says, let the love of the brethren continue. 1 John 4.21 says, he that loveth God ought to love his brother also. Peter, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, the writer of John, all knew that necessary to our Christian experience was the quality of loving one another. Do you love those of like faith with you? Do you care? You say, man, I feel all kinds of warm, fuzzy things about fellow Christians. No, I don't know that that's what the Bible's teaching about because 1 Thessalonians 4 says that love is things that you practice, things that you do. It is affection demonstrated in behavior. 1 John chapter 3. What is love for one another? Look at verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, that's godliness, is not of God. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Okay, I must love the brethren. It is a distinguishing feature of a Christian life. How do I do that? Verse 16, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrifice. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Verse 18, but in deed and in truth. You know what it takes to know God, to partake of His nature? Discovering the needs of other Christians and meeting those needs through the resources you possess. If you're going to know God, you can't live on an island. You can't live life under yourself. You have got to look for the needs of those around you and by so doing manifest Christian love. And then you have to reach inside or in your bank account or in your closet and meet a need. I get busy from time to time. I'm writing a thesis or just finished that and I'm building a house and I'm also trying to be a faithful pastor. My grass was about 18 inches long not too long ago. It wasn't because I don't care to cut it. It wasn't because I don't have a lawnmower with gasoline in it. I didn't have time. Now, my wife said I did, but truthfully, I didn't have time. And one of my members drove by my house and beheld my lawn. And one day I went home last week, and you won't believe it. Not only was it cut, it was raked and bagged. All my flower beds were weeded. Somebody had gotten the weed whacker out and trimmed every edge. You know what? They loved me. They saw a need and they went hard after it. If we're going to know God, we've got to find things to do that represent kind, beneficial activities one to another. We need each other. 
My wife was gone for ten days two weeks ago. Some kind and gracious person knew the state of affairs at my house. Knew that I was going to be in serious trouble if she came home and my house looked like it did. They got in through my garage, cleaned the kitchen, cleaned the sink, cleaned everything up. When I got home, I thought, my goodness, do I live here? And you know what? My wife loves me because she still thinks I did all of that. (laughs) I don't even know who did that, but I know this. Somebody loved me. When I left the Master's College, my wife and daughter flew. I went by you, no, rider, rider truck, 26-footer, bounced all the way to Alabama, 30 miles an hour, uphill, four miles to a gallon, no lie. But you know what? student at the Master's College drove with me at their expense to Albuquerque and flew back so I'd have company. The Vice President of Student Life flew to Albuquerque to meet me and rode the rest of the way to Alabama. Why? Because they loved me. Shouldn't we be in the business of doing that kind of thing for one another? I'll never forget that. I want to be that kind of Christian, don't you? Finally, well, let me say one other thing. A word of caution. Sometimes when people do nice things for you, it's not because they love you. Sometimes when you do nice things for people, even Christian people, it's not because you love them. Have you ever had people do nice things to you, but they kind of make you feel like you owe them? I just had my thesis typed. A gal in my church offered to do it for free. She works at a law firm, laser printer. I mean, it's awesome. It looks like a book. But you know what I felt every time she was doing something like that for me? That I owed her. And although the deal was free, I ended up paying her. You know why? She made me feel like I needed to pay her. Because the truth is, she wasn't really loving me. What she was doing was being nice to me, so I'd be nice back. You know people like that? Or how about the people that only call and talk to you or do nice things for you when they want something from you? I know some like that too. And sometimes I'll catch myself being a little extra kind to somebody because I know ultimately I want something from them. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says in chapter 1 verse 22 that we are to fervently love one another from the heart. But that's only after the first part of the verse. Since you have... Now I want to insert the word by, not in because I believe it has an instrumental idea. Since you have, by obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You know, it's really hard not to be manipulative when we love and do kind things for folks. Really hard. And the Bible teaches in 1 Peter that we can purify our soul and have a sincere love, a pure love, a clean love, an unmanipulative love. 
by obeying the Word of God, which purges and washes our soul. It reveals our motives like a light, and it allows our spirit to be redressed and renewed such that we can love. Since you have, by obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, therefore fervently love one another from the heart. And if you look at the whole theme of this passage, it's the Word of God and what it produces. New birth, new life, and growth. You want to love from the heart, discover deeds that need to be done, reach back and do those things that you can do to minister to those needs and make sure your heart's pure when you do it because it's not love otherwise. Finally, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll close with this. The last ingredient, in addition to diligently working hard to add moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, add Christian love, agape. We could spend all week on the word agape alone. 1 Corinthians talks about the 15 outworkings of love. All of the facets of love. What does it mean, agape love? Let's define it this way for brevity's sake. Agape is the deeds of kindness and gracious acts which we express to all men, even our enemies, because we love God. Agape is doing for others what you would have them do for you, regardless of whether they like you or not. Agape is turning the other cheek. Agape is going the second mile. Agape is giving the cloak also. Agape is laying your life down, even for those who don't love you at all. You say, I don't know how to do that. All I know is that it is a fruit of a walk with God. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. It is willful, personal sacrifice for the sake of others. It is the capstone. It is the crown jewel. It is the essence of all that has preceded. You want to walk with God? Do you want to know God? Do you want to partake of His nature? Do you want to escape the corruption that is in the world by lust? Verse 8, do you want to grow and bear fruit? Verse 9, do you want to have security of your salvation, not being blind to the former purification? Do you want to never stumble or not consistently fall back in your relationship with God? And when you get to heaven, do you want Jesus there with a rich heavenly reception waiting on you? Then work hard at loving people. Work hard at your faith. Love people for Jesus' sake. Last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, we had a tornado in Alabama. Blew down 25 trees in the yard of the home that we're building. I had had a long week. I did a wedding rehearsal on Friday night. I was beat. We had a series of meetings at our church. I was tired. I was not wanting a tornado to deal with. Blew shingles off the roof. It knocked down big trees, pine trees, oak trees, hickory trees. They were all over. You couldn't even get up to the house site. And it was my responsibility to get the chainsaw and go out, cut, and move several of those trees in order that the workmen could get to the work site. I want you to know I did not want to do that. And on my way to Columbiana that morning, which is about 20 minutes from where I now live, 
I crossed over Interstate 65 going down a country road, and there was this big guy with this great big suitcase. And he's just walking along. And I had one friend with me who was going to help me cut and move the wood, and I went by this guy, and I noticed him, and as I was cruising, and I was about a mile away from him by the time that God got a hold of my head. And he said, that guy back there, you need to go get him. Well, you know how that is. You don't really hear anything, but you kind of know. And it was as if he spoke to me. So I asked my buddy, do you mind if I turn around? You remember that big guy with the big suitcase? Yeah. Okay. So back we went. Mile back down the road, turned around, crossed the medial area, and pulled over and picked this guy up. I had a big Labrador in the back seat, big guy, big suitcase. We were loaded. And we started towards Columbiana, and that's where he was going in the began to ask him a little bit about what was going on. He said, well, I work at Captain D's, which is a fast food place near my home. And he said, I was walking to Columbiana. Well, that's 20 miles. I said, what for? Well, I was, well, I was pulled over the other day for driving under the influence. And they took my license. They took my car and impounded it. I have to walk now. I'm going to my parents and all my stuff's right here. I said, what's happened? Why were you drinking and running around? Older guy. He said, well, the fact is, is I got a divorce three years ago. She just left me, walked right on out, moved to Texas, haven't seen her since, and the fact is I've never gotten over it. And I've been drinking to get over it, to hide from it. I was tired. It was a very long week. But I want you to know, on, on the way to Columbiana that day, God began to work in my heart. And what I just have shared with you, I shared with him about how he can attach a fountain of life that is truly life and he doesn't need to escape from the hurt inside. He can give it to God. As we traveled down that highway to Columbiana and his heart, as his eyes teared and my heart got full, the little act of kindness, the act of love that turned that car around that caused me to pick up a big man with a big suitcase was the vehicle that ushered me into the presence of God. Because when I got to Columbiana, I was a new man. All that I ever longed for, I tasted that day. Because the Spirit of God is active to do God's will and God's work if you'll allow Him by doing what He asks you to do. Father, we